I think every single day we make the process better. And if you ask me a year from now, I'll tell you that the motor I built a year from now is better than the motor we built today. Oh, and that's been going on for 27 years. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Tom Nelson from Nelson Race Engines. Uh, even if you haven't heard of the name Nelson Race Engines or NRE before, if you've watched the Fast and the Furious franchise, chances are you've seen some of his handiwork, in particular the 68 Dodge Charger nicknamed Maximus that Dom Toretto drove in the Fast and Furious 7. Now, that is powered by a twin-turbo 2,200 horsepower 9.4 litre Hemi V8. And this is the sort of work that Tom is best known for. He was a very early adopter of moving from superchargers, which were always synonymous with V8 engines, to twin turbos. And in this episode, we talked to him about why he went this direction, how it advanced the game for him in terms of how much power his engine packages were producing. And he was also one of the instigators of the Mirror turbo setups that are now relatively achievable or uh, accessible through a number of aftermarket suppliers. At the time he was really pioneering this technique of mirror image turbos so that when you're looking into the engine bay everything is nice and symmetrical. You might be thinking well why does that even matter but when you're building cars at this level with customers spending between $500,000 and a million dollars on a build every little detail matters. So really interesting chat with Tom. We also dive into the business aspect of what he's doing these days and how the business has developed. Before we get into our interview with Tom, for those who are fresh to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune performance engines, how to build performance engines, how to create wiring harnesses, as well as race driver education, race car setup and data analysis just to name a few of our topics. Really relevant to our conversation with Tom today is our suite of engine building courses and if you want to expand your own knowledge and learn how to build engines this is the best place to start. Uh, We start here with our engine building fundamentals course which will teach you as its name implies the fundamentals behind engine building. You'll learn how the engine works, how the different engine styles operate, all of the internal components that are included in an engine and how they interact together. You'll learn the common machining processes that are required when building a performance engine. You'll learn about the tolerances and clearances inside our engines and how we may need to modify these from a factory specification when we are building something that's producing perhaps two or three times the factory power and revving further. Moving on from this we have our practical engine building course which dives a little bit deeper and shows you the step-by-step step process to building a performance engine irrespective of the platform you're personally interested in. Maybe it's a Hemi V8 like the one in the NRE Maximus, maybe it's an LS, maybe it's a four-cylinder Honda, it does not matter. We know that when it comes to building your first engine it can be a little bit daunting knowing what to do first and what order to progress in and that's why we've created the HPA 10-step process. By following that step-by-step process 
process. Each of the individual steps is relatively quick and easy to complete. In the end, you've got a completely built engine. You're going to have the confidence that every clearance inside the engine is correct for your application. You're going to know that when it comes time to start that engine, it's going to perform exactly how it should, producing great torque, great power, and most importantly, great reliability. At the end of this course, we do include a library of worked examples, which is an informal walkthrough of that 10-step process. You can watch it being applied in real time on a range of different engines to expand your knowledge. I will put links to those two courses in the show notes if you are interested in checking them out. As a podcast listener, you can also use the coupon code PODCAST75. That will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. Again, as a link in the description. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's jump into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, as we usually do, I want to learn a little bit about your background and, and how you first got involved in cars and the automotive industry. So, you know, my dad was into, into hot rods. So he had uh, like a 351 Mustang with a, with a boss in it. You know, they had the Cleveland style head. And then he had a Mario Andretti series Lotus. And then he ended up... Uh, twin turbocharging a Pantera. So we used to go to like the SCCA events with him and go to the track with him all the time. So he kind of, I don't know, he probably, he, he probably sparked it for me there, you know? And, uh, you know, we just did, we started out, actually had, I started my own auto detailing business out of, with a go-kart that I had. I used to go around to my neighbors, drive around like a three mile radius in my go-kart with the vacuums and all this other shit and detail all these people's cars. What sort of age are we talking here? 13. Uh, so the entrepreneurial spirit started pretty early as well. Yeah. And so then I guess from there we started street racing. So we'd do street racing and we were doing it, you know, three nights a week. And, you know, we were actually back then it seemed like big money and we were doing a bunch of betting and stuff like that. And then, then the street racing got weird. There were gangs got involved and saw some bad stuff happen. So saw a guy get run over, another guy get shot over an argument. And that was it for me on the street racing deal there. The, the scene was weird. So then I decided, oh, you know, I'd love to start just doing this professionally because I was a house painter at the time. Or actually, I, I had like a, a construction style business. My mom was a apartment complex manager. So she, she managed all, all sorts of these different apartment complexes and I'd be building fences or whatever they needed for all these things. And I hated it. So I decided, you know, I'd like to start building engines. So I started doing all my buddies' uh, engines on the side. My grandmother gave me your garage. I converted the garage into like a little mini engine building shop. My good buddy, uh, Cole Balster, um, who kind of was with racing with us all the time, his dad used to like give away these uh, body and white cars for pro stock racers. So one of the pro stock racers approached his dad and said, do you know anybody who's interested in buying a machine shop? Is their cousin, Bill Hyatt, had recently passed away and they had this machine shop and uh his dad was like yeah well you know my my son's good friend is uh building a machine shop right now so he'd be interested and when i walked in it was like amazing i mean it had a go power dyno and the flow bench i still use today and all this machinery and it was like you know this is what i wanted i didn't have the, enough money for it so i ended up uh bidding this huge 
fence contract uh, in the middle of summer. It was like 115 degrees out. And uh, it was like kind of a race to the finish to get this machine shop. So we, I think we built 100 fences in like a month and a half. And, the, and my grandmother loaned me some money. And between those two things, I was able to purchase the machine shop. And that's that's how it started. You know, we just in 95, we opened the doors. All right. Well, let, let's rewind a little bit because there's um, there's a pretty different skill set between building fences and, and painting houses and, and building precision race engines. So I, I'm going to guess when you said that you're involved in the street racing scene at that point, you're building up some level of mechanical skill, uh, either building your own engines at that point or at least spinning spanners on, on your own car. So is this all self-taught, including the, the engine building element? Or were you going through some formal qualifications at, you know, previously as well? Yeah, no, it's it, it was all shade tree stuff. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, we'd like, you know, underneath my bed was like a mecca of like it. there wasn't the internet. You had magazines. And you'd be like, I remember when this guy built this motor and you do thrash through hundreds of magazines to try to find that one article or whatever. So we were just trying stuff that, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And, you know, I think at that time I was, I had an 85 IROC Z that I had bought that was like a total piece of shit and it always broke. So that kind of, uh, sparked everything so i poured at the heads and made my own cold air intake from like plumbing city store <laughs> stuff you know made a homemade nitrous system on it and you know i just it snowballed into kind of what it is today you know that's kind of how it went yeah absolutely no difference into the direction or path that, that i tended to take although i didn't obviously go as deep as, as you've gone in the in the uh, engine building world and in terms of that obviously there are formal qualification paths you can take if you want to become an engine builder or i probably more refer to them as engine reconditioners and this isn't to get offside with uh, engine reconditioners but i do see a bit of a disconnect between what your average engine machine shop does or engine reconditioner does and the likes of what you're doing and why why i say that is most most engine shops are probably rebuilding sort of your garden variety low horsepower street engines where you know the the tolerances aren't probably quite so critical when you're trying to build a, a 2000 horsepower twin turbo v8 you you're kind of working to a different level so where where i'm going with this is <laughs> Coming from a traditional background of, of learning the skills of, of engine building, does that set someone up in and of themselves to then go and build a 2,000 horsepower twin turbo V8? Or is there a different level of understanding, knowledge and skills that are required to operate at that level? I, I mean, I, I don't come from a background of like schooling or engineering. I come from a background of like shade tree, try it, see see how it works and then see what didn't work and make it better. So, yeah, I I mean, I'm not saying like we're the the mecca here and we know what we're doing. I think every single day we make the process better. And if you ask me a year from now, I'll tell you that the motor I built a year from now is better than the motor we built today. Oh, and that's been going on for 27 years, you know, so we constantly are evolving the process and making it better. And and, and the sad thing is if you bring me a stock motor to rebuild, I'm still going to build it at the same level clearance wise and quality wise that I will the 2000 horse motor. It's just the component selection and stuff like that will be different. But as far as like 
you know, the pride that we take when we're machining stuff, we're, we're going to do it nice any which way or else I don't want to do it. It's just, it's a waste of time for me if I'm not going to take pride in it, you know? Sure. I think, I think what you mentioned there about just seeing the evolution of, of what you're doing and, and learning from what you see come back. I mean, I think that that's really valuable. I had, had this, a similar experience with, you know, back in my drag racing days and I'm sorry, we were four cylinders too short, but, uh, we were dealing with the Mitsubishi 4G63 engine and we were building a number of these and we were up around the thousand wheel horsepower and we would get these engines back in at the end of a season and you got the opportunity to go through the engine and see you know how how they'd worn what what was wearing what was good what was bad and and that iterative approach of, of seeing what came back after a season of racing and then making small iterative adjustments and then doing the same a season later i think that really accelerates you, your your learning and i mean you've got multiple data points on this so i can only imagine that that it curve gets accelerated even further. In terms of the engine assembly process, that, that's one element. And I mean, we have courses that, that cover this. I, I genuinely believe that uh, any enthusiast with uh, an eye for detail and some, some patience can learn those skills, uh, albeit there is a practical element. Obviously, you need to get competent with that. I sort of see engine machining, the actual machining processes, though, as being uh, another level. And often that is something that, that most people would go through a, uh, a training program for. So when you bought that machine shop, what was the learning curve for you like getting, getting your head around all of that equipment and getting the best out of it? It was crazy when I got the machine shop because I had all these machines and I didn't know what I was doing. So I was just taking junk blocks and trying to learn the process. And I kind of thought I knew what I was doing. I had a guy come in that I traded use of the shop for him kind of showing me the way. But there was actually an old gentleman uh, that used to uh, run a shop called Evans Speed Equipment. His name was Gene Olean. And so this this guy was the guy in my dad's mags. He was like the guy, you know. And we kind of struck up. I, I, I was selling a, a like a, a wet grinder that I didn't need in the shop. And he came by and was looking at a couple things and, you know, in a very nice way could tell that I didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know? And so kind of on the weekends we would, you know, I'd, we'd trade some things and then he would show me the proper way to do things. And so he really, he set us up in the beginning and really put me on a different level than your average guy because he had been doing this for his whole life. So all these processes that he knew, I think he he enjoyed showing somebody that was into it, that appreciated listening to him on how he did it, you know. So even today, like how we true our line hone in, how we true the the rod hones in. There were all these really specialized old school ways of doing it. And today you can go get like a rod machine that has a power stroker and all of that stuff. And I can by hand beat that machine any day of the week just by setting up the stones correctly, you know. So it really has to do with the setup and the operation. And I was lucky enough to have a guy kind of put me on the right path. And then, you know, it, every month you're realizing that you can do it better. So um, that's kind of where we're at right now. You just raised an interesting point that that I often sort of wonder about. I mean, these days, the advent of CNC machining equipment is obviously sort of taken over. 
And we see a lot of machine shops all around the world with the latest and greatest CNC equipment, which on one hand is great. These machines, when when used properly, obviously can do an exceptional job. Uh, and then we've got older machinery that when you understand how to use it and the operator really knows their stuff, uh, I, I would sort of see that they could probably arguably get comparable results to the CNC equipment. It sounds like you sort of tend to agree with that stance. Well, I think the CNC equipment is just, it's faster. But it's definitely, I wouldn't say it's better because like, for example, we get brand new blocks all the time that are cut on CNC equipment. And like, we always have to change the deck. You know, the deck's always crooked one way or another. The bores aren't perpendicular perfect. The honing, you know, I haven't really played around too much with the new computerized hones, but my hone, I have actually taken all the automatic feeds off and I actually use my hand to feel the cylinder and the guys that I've taught how to do that. So I can load and unload the cylinder exactly where I want it with just finger pressure. So we'll hold a, we'll hold a tenth up, down, bottom, side to side. And I'll be able to, you know, hear the cut. Is the cut bright? Is it is it gummed up? You know, all of these things when you're when you're honing a cylinder, you're not gonna be able to know any of that when the CNC machine is just doing its thing and you're walking around, you know, checking things. So I like that little intimate, especially because we don't do a lot of motors. We're only doing maybe 200 motors, 300 motors a year or something like that, you know? So, you know. I'd argue that's a few. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. I mean, there's guys out there you know, doing thousands of motors, right? So they're, that's when you want to really get into, uh, you know, a CNC where you're just, you know, you have to because, you know, either that or you're going to like... Efficiency of the time yeah, I, saved. So I I was honing, I was doing the cylinder hones and the machining for a while. And then, you know, it's a very special guy that you're going to allow to do that for you on, with your name behind it. So, you know, the guy who's doing them for me right now, I mean, it's it was probably two years of messing around before he really had the hone right, you know. And now, you know, we joke with each other because we punk, you know, oh, you know, I did a better job than you or whatever. And it's a little competition. It's nice, though, you know. Yeah, yeah. Nice to have a little bit of friendly rivalry. Uh, just to dive into that just in a little bit more detail is that honing process is really critical. Obviously, it creates that uh, that crosshatch pattern and the, the rings are going to bid against that. But the bit that's easy to overlook for those who haven't really been involved at any level is that you're also, depending on, on where the, the hone dwells and, and how you use it, it's very easy to create either taper or belling in, in the bores. In other words, you know, on face value, you'd think they're going to be perfectly round and perfectly parallel from the top to the bottom, but it's very easy to create a, a bore that isn't like that if you don't know what you're doing, correct? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's a certain stroke length and how much you're overstroking, where it's overstroking on the top or the bottom. Uh, all of that is crucial. And what uh, not a lot of people realize is not every stone is is the same. Like you could put in like a Sun in 623 and be having a bad day with the hone and just that batch of stone was just a bad batch of stone. Swap the stone out, and all of a sudden, everything looks right to the world, you know? So we even have special stones that we've had made for difficult blocks where you can, they're real soft and they break down fast. So sometimes you get like an old Donovan or something like that where it wants to be an egg, and, you know, a hard stone just continues. It won't unegg the cylinder where you can put, like, we call them the magic stones, and you can. Put them in there and you can actually hear them 
taking out the high and the low. So is that is that down to sort of uh, an uneven hardness in, in the factory bores that's causing that sort of, as you say, egg shape to, to occur? I, I think there, there, there's so many variables. Like there's sleeves that come out of the bottom of the bore that are, are not supported that can go weird. Uh, you know, when you plate some motors, they really twist up. So you got to get, you got to take this thing that was round and it, like, for example, like a 2.8 V6, not that we do those anymore, but uh, back in the day, you could plate hone it, put the thing together. It wouldn't even turn over until you torqued the heads on it if you plate honed it right. So they were that much of a noodle, you know, and then you torque the heads on the thing rotates over beautifully, you know. Just shows how, how much distortion there, there is with the, the heads being bolted on. Yeah, the new blocks are pretty good. But, I mean, like, for example, LSs, we're putting 105 foot-pounds on the, on the head bolts. That can move a cylinder pretty easily. Although I will say, like the dart blocks, the way they have it, they're pretty stout. So they don't move as much as like the old stuff. You know, the old stuff was like an old FE Ford or something. Like you could just, I mean, those are the worst blocks in the world. <laughs> All right, Tom, let's find out uh, a little bit more about Nelson Race Engines. Obviously, there's uh, a big hint in the name there, but as I said, you do uh, a lot more than just build race engines. So can you give us an idea of the, the scope of this business? Up until this year, we we basically were a one-stop shop. I mean, we would paint the car, you know, could build the chassis, full, complete, top-to-bottom R&D prototype, make custom intakes, make custom exhaust conduits, uh, you know, even design complete engines from nothing. At the beginning of this year, I decided that we were going to basically not take any more cars, uh, not for a while at least. Because we had like 22 full builds going on, and it was just taking too much of my time. So we've we've basically thinned out. I think we got 10 cars left, and probably got about four years of building those 10 cars that are left. Uh, but we do all sorts of stuff, like we 3D scan, we 3D print, uh, we do all you know SolidWorks design in house. We've got three chassis tables, you know, like this. Uh, mid-engine all-wheel drive GTO we're building. We made the chassis. We made the suspension from scratch. We helped design the all-wheel drive system. So like our capabilities these days is just absolutely bananas uh, compared to really not many people know that we did that. A lot of people just think we're an engine shop, but yeah, we, we pretty much do it all. How did you go from purchasing that engine shop and, and sort of bootstrapping that uh, to to sort of building up these capabilities. I mean, obviously, as you say, you've you've been operating for twenty seven years. These things don't happen overnight. But I mean, that that's a a, a very big U turn from just focusing on the engine machining at the start. Uh, it started probably to be honest. The way it started out is in ninety eight to two thousand. We were starting to do a lot of turbocharged, you know, like thousand horsepower small blocks, which doesn't sound like anything today it's like no big deal but back then nobody even believed it was true but along with that came like you had to have a correct radiator you had to correct cooling for your transmission you had electronic fuel injection you had to have fuel system to deal with all of that the car needed to be caged and so we would sell an engine to a guy and then spend so much time with support and everything because it was so new 
that we were teaching all these different builders how it needed to be done. And then at that point, I was like, well, we should just open up Nelson Supercars and start, you know, building these cars. And so I bought a uh, fabrication company, uh, Red Zone Race Fabrication. And that's kind of what Nelson Supercars started is we, you know, bought a buddy that used to do a lot of my fabrication. It was like, why don't you just buy my company? So we, we bought his company. And then along with that, he brought a lot of skills. And then we brought in a lot of talented guys on that end of the shop. And then started building these things out, you know, bananas. So at, at this point, as you say, you, you're sort of pulling back a little bit from the full custom builds. But at, at this point, how how many staff have you got, and what size is your facility? Uh, there were sixteen thousand feet, and uh, right now our staff—I don't even know anymore—but I think fourteen guys. We're really a small shop. We at one point we were at like thirty some odd guys when we really had the cars humping. But half my day was like. HR problems and like figuring out every roadblock there is on custom cars and having to relay that back and forth with the customer. And it just got to a point where I wasn't enjoying myself as much. You know, it's just, it's, it was just too much to do. So that's kind of why we've pulled back away from that. I mean, I, I love, I love the cars because the cars make my engine building packages so much better. Because uh, when you get to put them in and drive them and understand how they work on the street and understand how they work at the track, it's not just like building them and sending them out the door. You get you get feedback, you know. Mm, yeah. Uh, also, like the the packages too. Like like if you bought a package from me ten years ago, it was a lot harder to put in than it is now because now we've refined so many different processes that it makes the end user. You know, a lot of times people get worn out just trying to do it. Back in the day, it was just there wasn't a lot of fabricators around there there was you know they had to go through 10 different shops to get it done everybody's pointing the finger at each other so we try to develop packages now that when you buy it it's it's relatively hassle-free you know the headers fit the chassis and the tune is all done for you the 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 wiring you're just hooking up power and grounds so it uh it's it's pretty good now i'm interested in learning about the the process of these these builds just because it sounds like a, a massive job you sort of I think you mentioned four years there to get the remaining 10 cars out the door so you know for, for a start obviously it's going to depend on the quality and how extensive the build is but I mean on, on average some of these uh, full ground up builds you know what, what's the time frame from start to finish usually anywhere from like three to five years is is what a build will take okay and over that time, could you estimate maybe how many man hours are going into them? Um, I, I don't really know man hours. About an, on an average nowadays, like if you're going to do, and it, this sounds totally crazy, and it, it even sounded crazy to me when I started, but if you wanted a car, like a nice car, but still basic, it's about a half a million dollars. You want a badass car, it's about a million dollars. And that sounds nuts, but by the time you go and you fit the body and you block everything and you've custom made every damn bracket on that car and you got that thing, you know, at a pro level, even at that price, you look back and go, man, I didn't make anything on that damn car. And people will be like, you're out of your mind. But that's just kind of the way it is. Like we'll spend two days on a bracket and then you got 20 hours in a bracket and you tell the guy, well, I'm going to charge you 20 man hours for this bracket. The guy wants to strangle you, but that's what it takes you know it's the reality yeah I, I, I it's good that you've brought that up because i think those who haven't been involved at that level would have no understanding of, of how projects like that will just consume time like you wouldn't believe which w- was going to be my next question around 
you know, as a business, one of the problems, you know, I, I never operated at the level you're operating at, but we would have customers come in and want to do a build on a car and I mean every time it's something different so it's not like you can take the recipe of uh, you know do this this and this and it's going to take this many hours and we charge this amount of money and it's out the door you know you're learning as you go and you find other problems as you, 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 you that you couldn't ever possibly predict as you progress through the project so pricing those was very problematic and, and to my mind, it, it still is, unless you're doing a rinse and repeat cookie cutter. This is a car I specialise in. We offer these parts. We fit those. You'll get this result, and it's going to be this much money. And that's definitely not what you're doing. So, I mean, how how do you approach that side of things, or are you just dealing with, you know, the the very few customers that you're fortunate enough to have where the 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 dollar value on it doesn't matter, and they'll just write the check at the end of it, and you charge out all of your hours. I'll add to that because most shops probably end up for every hundred hours they put into the to the job, they sort of look at it at the end and go, "Oh shit, I can't charge that." I mean, that seems excessive. So instead of charging a hundred hours, a, a lot of shops will probably end up pulling that back to seventy hours, and, and then you're kind of just doing yourself out of out of a, a job, really. Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's a crazy process because what you're doing is you're creating a one on one, right, and it's every single one that you build. Nobody wants the same thing. Everybody wants something bigger, better, different. When you do that, there's there's. I was pricing stuff out. I'd be like, oh, we'll build this car for three hundred fifty thousand, and then we'd finish it. It was a lot of stress involved because they're thinking, oh, you're taking so much time, you're it's so much money. And at the end of the day, we lost like one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So we paid the guy one hundred fifty thousand dollars to build his car, you know. And we did that yeah. almost on like every build up until the last few years. And um, it's just because I w- I was taking it a, as a like an art form, and I'm like, I don't. We've already taken this, this, and this to this point. I can't just go this far with that much rest of the car. You know, and these guys that I got working on my shop, I mean, I'm headhunting these guys from all across the world. These guys that are working in my shop, these are the best guys in the world, right? So, and I'm still, we start, our labor rate is still 90 bucks an hour, which is insane, right? So, I got a guy that, you know, is a natural talent that I'm hunting down to bring in my shop to work. And this guy is an absolute artist, like everybody in the shop. And then I'm worried about charging 90 bucks an hour for this artist that's in my shop making gold, you know, and the guy who's paying for it's going, I don't even understand. And I actually do understand where that person would be coming from. But after running a shop now for on the supercar side of things for over 16, 17 years, it just is what it is. You you have a customer that wants to do it or it isn't worth your time because it's just stress at that point, you know, and I've built enough cars to, not need to prove that we need to build another car, you know? So, um, that's kind of, that's kind of where we're at right now. And we're a bit overwhelmed with how many cars we got going on, but I bet you the story is probably the same on most builders. If you talk to them, you know? Yeah. I I think a lot of it comes down to educating the customer at the, at the start of, of what the process is going to be. And, you know, 
even if you can say, just like you did at the start of this, you know, a, a good car's you know, half a million, and if you want something super badass, then then you're looking closer to a mil. I mean, those are ballpark numbers. I mean, those are huge numbers, no doubt. But you know, w- when you're looking at something bespoke with a three to five year build and the man hours that's going into it, I mean, unfortunately, that that's kind of what you have to pay to play. And uh, you know, you're going to have something that that is one off and at a world class. So I, I kind of get it, even if uh, uh, my wallet won't quite stretch to, yeah. <laughs> to that at this point. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's it's it, it yeah, you, you, it, it's it's weird to even think of that, but that is the reality of it at the level that we're doing it, you know. Yeah. Uh, interesting to, to talk about sort of some of the, the more popular uh, US domestic market muscle cars that, that are, are popular for builds. You know, now there's a, a lot of companies or a number of companies that are offering sort of off-the-shelf full chassis for those. Is, is that something that's worth looking at or everything you do is just 100% in-house? Oh no, yeah. The the chassis like Roadster Shop and Art Morrison, those guys are uh, unbeatable for the value that you get. I mean, you're getting this really nice modern chassis that has good brakes, modern geometry suspension. You cannot touch that. Uh, only time we're doing one-off chassis is for like the flagship cars for Nelson Racing, and even then, I'll I'll have guys at Roadster Shop make us something. Those guys are amazing over over there yeah all right let's talk a little bit more about the engines as i've sort of mentioned that's probably one of the areas you're best known for and uh more specifically around sort of monster power 2000 plus horsepower twin turbo v8s and you know the the v8 market as i've seen it sort of evolve it has always been more geared towards the the supercharger and specifically initially roots and now screw blowers that sit nicely in the valley. I mean, it's a nice packaging exercise. And, you know, V8s and twin turbos for the longest time, they, they weren't a popular combination. So I'm interested to know why, why you sort of went that route rather than sticking to the superchargers that most people deal with. Well, we started off in 95 and we got a a good client that was doing a ton of offshore marine stuff. So we were doing a ton of 1471 dual dominator 572s. And, you know, I mean, you look at that thing when you're done and it's like 10 feet tall. Uh, it's got a nasty cam and all this, you know, it, it looks like it's going to make 5,000 horse and they make like a thousand horse, you know? So I, I think we, we had done a ton of those and then we swapped over and started doing some turbo stuff and i used to call them a two for one because i mean the turbo has just murdered the blower motors as far as power goes and also like when i was a kid my dad turbocharged his pantera and it was like i i knew what the results were from doing that so we started adapting all of that stuff into the street stuff i i, I still remember i had this manual go power dyno where you kind of you manually load the the water brake and it had a uh a raw 750 foot pound gauge, which that, that dyno was like the stingiest. Dy- if you made 750 raw on that dyno back in the day, you were like the king because I mean, it, it, it probably should have been, you could have equated that to like 1100 foot pounds or something, you know? So we were working and working, trying all these different turbo combinations. And back when I started, everybody was T3, T4, these little baby turbos and, all the turbo experts were telling you, you know, look at the compressor map. You shouldn't be running these big turbos. 
when you go to the track and you see race cars runs, they were always running like a bigger turbo. And we spent like nine months around with these bullshit, you know, hybrid small turbos on a V8. And at one point I was like, man, I don't even know how to build a motor. Like we can't make over 700 horse with these turbo motors. Like I started to think I didn't know what I was doing. And everybody's telling me, oh, you're not tuning it right. A header parameter diameter is not right. A camshaft's not right. So I think we went through 26 different turbo sizes. I went through like five camshafts, three header sets. And then finally I was like, I- I'm done listening to all these guys. I'm going to spec a turbo that I want to run. And we spec this 72 millimeter turbo. And when we pulled the handle, I almost blew the intake off because it was so lean. And the smile on my face, I knew at that point that we were on the right track because it was putting so much air in that motor, the tune-up just did not keep up. So we literally swapped from what was known at the time, this 60 mil turbo to this 72 and picked up 550 horsepower just to turbo change and putting fuel in it. And that thing took my that, that took my old Go Power Dyno, wrapped it all the way around 750, went up to like 300 <laughs> foot pounds on the other side. My eyeballs were like, oh my God, what the hell is going <laughs> on here? <laughs> and at that point, I'm like, all right, well, we got, we got a combination for the street now that's pretty much unbeatable, you know? You're going to make a thousand horsepower on pump gas on a street back then. It was like forget about it you know it's 20 years ago <laughs> over 20 obviously as, as you go larger with the turbo sizing it is a balance of of airflow and high-end power versus response but of course when you're dealing with a, a reasonable capacity v8 you've got that capacity to your advantage so you're still getting i'm assuming reasonable uh, boost response reasonable boost threshold with these turbos yeah, well, that that was the thing is everybody's like, you got a drag race turbo, it'll never spool. And I think uh, one of the cars, it was a 98.57 LS where you had the turbos mounted low and it was a stick car of all things. That thing light up like nobody's business with a 68 turbine with a 9.6 AR. You know, you think, oh, it'd never, it'd never turn on. And man, that thing would just... I remember I we were going to Palmdale one t- one time. My brother had a Viper. I just I walked away from him like he wasn't even on the throttle. It was so bad, you know. Back then, like it was like a hundred forty mile an hour car and a quarter, but it was like back then on ninety one octane going one hundred and forty. That was badass, you know. Yeah, yeah. One of the packaging problems, obviously, with with turbocharging when you're building an engine where the aesthetics are every bit as important as the power and torque that the thing makes is traditional turbochargers are single rotation or the direction of rotation is is, is fixed. So it, it's hard to make the the whole engine bay and assembly look symmetrical. Which I mean, okay. Does it matter? Uh, it really depends who you ask, I guess. But uh, you, you were one of the first I saw were actually producing uh, mirror image turbochargers so you could get that symmetry. So what what was the, the driver behind that? Was this just purely the aesthetics that, that made you go to that extreme? Well, we were doing a ton of turbo stuff at that point. And I was so sick of like trying to, you know, put the turbos at an angle or, you know, trick your eyes into not make it look like it was unsymmetrical 
that I decided I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make some symmetrical turbos. And so we actually patented the mirror image turbos. It took us three years to get a actually utility patent on it. And when we did that, it just, oh man, it made, it made the installation so nice. And, and there's some advantages to mirror image turbos that people don't really think about is that when the left side of the motor is operating the same as the right, your reliability goes up. So when you got a snail going the different direction on the left, then the header tubes are different. The intake conduit is different. Um, the waste gating is different. So the mirror image turbos, they actually, in my mind, it's it's the only way to do it, really. Uh, plus, it, it just drives me insane to go look at a, a car when it, when they're not mirror image, you know. That's what, obviously, I got issues, you know. What you're saying there with the packaging, you're, you're able to not only have a mirror image turbo that then by default allows you to essentially have mirror image of the exhaust manifolds, the wastegates, the wastegate placement. So essentially both turbos are getting fed in exactly the same way. There's no discrepancies in airflow. Is that is that sort of what you're referring to? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm guessing you sort of don't wake up one morning and go, hey, you know what, I'm just going to pop out the back and uh, jump on the lathe and I'm going to spin up a turbocharger There's quite a lot that goes on to that so I'm assuming you had sort of aligned yourself with an existing turbo manufacturer when you started down this path of the mirror image turbos how did, how did that all work out we actually kind of did it the way you said originally is we actually drew it okay. <laughs> and I mean I was cutting uh, exhaust turbines out of solid inconel and we'd go through like two bits per wheel it'd take 15 hours to cut one turbine on a five axis so we were doing that, and I was charging like fifteen thousand bucks a turbo or something. And uh, I'm like, "Well, this is no way to make money." But I just obviously I wanted to do it. And then I had a really good working relationship with a company called Turbonetics. As a the president of the company at the time, this guy Brad Lewis, me and him get along thick as thieves. You know, we're real good friends. So I was like, you know, can we, you know, design this, and then you would you know, you would manufacture it. So they would assemble it, balance it, package it. And, uh, and then we would just sell it as an entry, uh, turbo. And so we struck up that relationship and, um, it, it's been fantastic. Uh, Turbonetics bought precision, which was owned by a company called Wabtech. So now, uh, precision is actually, uh, manufacturing our turbochargers. And now, obviously, we've seen other mainstream manufacturers jump on board with the mirror image turbos, the likes of Garrett, etc. cetera. So it's, it's sort of, I don't know if you started that revolution. I mean, certainly you weren't the, the first to have a mirror image turbo, but at this level and at that size in particular. Uh, but yeah, now, now they are obviously a, a little bit more mainstream. Now, in terms of the the rest of these packages, again, kind of following that same trend of uh, the form versus function or the aesthetics of the finished package, um, I mean, there's a lot of of detail that you go to with the likes of your billet inlet manifolds in terms of uh, hidden fuel systems, hidden wiring. How how do you sort of weigh up the the balance between the aesthetics and the ability to to easily and and quickly work on aspects of the engine? How how do you sort of make the decision of where where the the sweet spot is there? Uh, One of our slogans is like, we build functional mechanical art. So I I definitely look at uh, our engine packages as art, not only as like a functional engine, but I look at it like a piece of art, like a little piece of jewelry that you picture frame in your engine bay obviously if you're doing like drag week or a race car you don't want hidden injectors that are going to take you three hours to take out and cuss while you're doing it all the time and 
So there, there's a fine line between, you know, serviceability and beauty. There's always a compromise somewhere. So we have different packages that like, we've got some really nice crate packages that are really easy to service. Everything is, is drive-by-wire throttle. Injectors are completely available to, to get to harnessing everything. Uh, and then if you want to get like into where it looks like it doesn't even run, we get, go as far as hiding throttle linkage, hiding sensors, hiding injectors, looms, et cetera. And the customer can kind of decide that with us. So we have, you know, from basic to Riddler style quality, you know. I'm assuming as well that, that some of the higher end builds that you're doing, these sort of half a million dollar and, and up cars, they're, they're not daily driven. They're probably not sort of doing 20,000 miles a year of, of commute, are they? They're sort of the odd weekend and, and probably not clocking up too many miles. Yeah, when you get into a car build at that level, um, there's some guys that just that will just they have the money they don't care they're going to drive it but some sometimes the car gets so nice you almost paint yourself into a corner and it becomes stressful to like leave it in the parking lot and that that becomes a negative at some point mm. uh, so there's definitely you know like a, a big kick right now is like the survivor series that jeremy over at the roaster shop is doing so they'll find like a good car it's got some patina and they don't really even care about the outside. And then they put a chassis, brakes, engine, drivetrain all in it and make it all modern. And, and you know, they can take it anywhere. Some guy scratches it. Then it just adds to the character of the car. So, you know, they, they, there's something for everybody out there, right? There's also the show car guy that wants everything so immaculate that you just have to build it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a personal preference. I, I like to be able to drive a car and not be worried about it at that level but yeah I mean obviously everyone is is a little bit different uh, in terms of the the billet components that you're adding like the inlet manifolds and I mean obviously it's difficult in the podcast to explain this and people can can jump on your your website or follow your Instagram account after this and actually get a sense if they haven't seen a, an NRE engine before I mean it, it is absolutely a, a work of art uh, I'm interested what was the design process but behind some of these uh, let's talk about the inlet manifolds for it, just one example. And in terms of the design, is this uh, a case where you're modelling airflow? Is there any CFD that goes along with this? Or are, are you sort of working on the basis of uh, form follows function? In other words, if, if it looks the part, if it, if it looks like it's going to work, it probably will work. Oh, yeah, there's definitely... Uh a whole bunch of airflow testing. There's there's experience from over the years to know what taper angles worked, what runner lengths worked. And then, then we can go in and model, you know, pressure simulations and all of that stuff. In the end, when you put it on the dyno, the lie detector tells you if it's worth it or you put it in the car. And, you know, sometimes you, you got winners and sometimes you got losers, you know? Yeah, I, I think everything plays into that. It's not, we're definitely not, making an art project we have experience with making some really high horsepower stuff over the years and then we take the best parts of those things and put it in and then try to make it look you know our own unique nre way 
let's talk a little bit more about the engines. I mean, you haven't really aligned yourself solely with with one manufacturer, so it's hard to sort of talk in generalities because there are differences across the the different brands. But uh, let, let's just talk maybe a, a little bit about the LS platform because it is still such a popular one for hot rodding for modification, and obviously in, in stock form, the LS block is is alloy. And that works up to a point, and particularly when you start adding boost, uh, there is going to be sort of a, a limit of how far you can push before you start seeing uh, failures with the, the lights of the bores, the sleeves. You know, what, what sort of a, a safe limit uh, with the, the factory block, or do you, do you not even bother going anywhere with, with stock blocks? We don't do anything with the factory block anymore. Now, that's not to say that the factory block isn't great, because there's tons of guys out there that are killing it with the factory block. A good buddy of mine, uh, Matt Happel, he's like the king. And, and Richard Holdner and all those guys. Those guys are all, you know, taking stock blocks and putting thousand wheel all the time down with them. But for me, as a engine manufacturer, it, it makes no sense because you're going to get this block, which now are to get an LS block is expensive to get like a core block, and then you're going to sleeve it. And, you know, then you, you don't have the extra head bolt holes. You don't have the priority oil style main system. So it really doesn't make any good business sense for me to try to make engines like that. We don't do a, a whole ton of NA stuff, even though we've got a lot of NA packages. Probably 80% of the engines we're doing are, are boosted in, in some way. And, and in that, we start off with uh, almost all, with the exception of like aluminum counterparts, we, we use a a dart ls next when it comes to the ls stuff and that's because it has two extra head bolts which we actually have them make three ace instead of the eight mil stuff and then we take all the head studs we make them half inch we run billet steel splayed cap it's got the priority main and it's just like that thing is like like we have we, we've got a couple ls's that are making 2500 horse continuous for over a minute on the dyno and and you could never do that with the with a stock block. You just shred that thing in half, you know. I think it's it's important to sort of understand that there's a not insignificant expense in in going and adding sleeves to the to the likes of a, a factory LS block. So when you factor that cost in, I'm guessing for a, a little bit more money with that dart block. Uh, I, I can't compare. Obviously, I don't know what the differences in, in price are. But as you mentioned, the, there's a bunch of other then benefits that go over and above even a, a sleeved alloy block. So that that's what makes it a, a no-brainer. Yeah, for us, there actually isn't a price difference. Like if I have to take a stock LS block and do all of those things to make it right, you can just be into a dart at the same cost. Yeah. Okay. And the dart's way better. You know. In terms of the block, obviously that that's important for the strength and reliability basically to to hold in all of that cylinder pressure. Uh, what are the other components that, that you're sort of putting into the rotating assembly, into, including crank rods, pistons, etc.? I mean, we use a I-beam style connecting rod. We use either a billet or a 4340 forged crankshaft, mainly 2618 style forgings on the piston. We use, as far as the head gaskets, depending like 1500 horse and less, I'll use like the MLX series multi-layer uh, Kometic head gaskets with very smooth surface finishes 
and a, a heavy clamp load. Uh, and beyond that, then we go in and do like flame hoop and receiver groove with all sorts of special sealants, um, you know, ink and L uh, material on the valves and magnesium guide material. Um, so it, it, like every single component is selected for an engine like this. It's not something, it's not, there's really nothing stock. I, I don't think there's w- one stock component except for yeah. the timing damper <laughs> or something like that. You know, there's not much <laughs> stock in the engine. Sure. Uh, it's, to, to be expected when you're talking the power levels that, that you're aiming for. Uh, I'm interested with the, the, the piston. So you, you know, obviously, you need to make a decision here around compression ratio, which is driven in a, a big element towards the amount of boost you pressure you want to run. Obviously, that's driven by the power target, and also the other factor there to take into account is is the fuel uh, that you've got available. So, you know, what what's, what sort of your your happy go to place in terms of compression ratio, and are you varying that compression ratio depending whether you're building an engine for a pump gas or a race gas, maybe C sixteen Q sixteen for an example, or E eighty five even. A very safe compression ratio is like 8.8, but I was on that bandwagon for a long time. But nowadays with E85 and even E98, let's say you're building a screw blower. The the screw blower really, it's running out of air, air pretty quick. So if you're building a screw blower, they actually like a bit of compression, 10 to 1, even 11 to 1. If you're on E, you can even go 11 to 1. And there's an enormous amount of power increase that you can do and it kind of goes against conventional wisdom because you're thinking well it's blown it should be like nine to one but you actually can make a tremendous amount of power more by putting some compression in those engines and and it works pretty good so i think you'll probably start seeing that more with a lot of different builders is people are going to start running a little more compression on turbocharged stuff it does get to be a balancing act with the the flex fuel e85 because as you say i mean 11 to 1 might be absolutely fine on e85 but if you have to get that thing around on pump gas, it's going to be very difficult to get the tune conservative enough or you're going to be really compromising uh, on, on the pure pump gas so that you've got the best of the best when you're on E85. Is that something you sort of find as well? Or would you compromise the compression ratio on an engine that needs to run on both fuels? It, you know, it's a fine line. For example, a motor we just had on the dyno recently, like it had a higher compression ratio and I just murdered the timing table down to like 12 degrees up to peak torque and was able to sneak some timing in after peak torque. And the thing was it just a and monster and it had high compression and there's no detonation because you're i'm always day logging checking knock level and everything i think things are going to go that direction sure i i, I already kind of see it happening because the e is kind of driving it right so everybody's running e but but I, i've been doing tests on on gas like 91 and and it's still surprisingly you can get away with more than you think as long as you get in like, let's say you do a tug, right? You data log it, you trace it, right? And then you do a tug, you got maybe 19 degrees, right? When you, you hit hit the dynos at like 3,000 RPM, tons of load, right? You go back and got knock everywhere. I, sorry, can I cuss on this thing or, or are you going to delete it? You, you already have, so no need to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> that, sh- that ship has sailed. <laughs> but the thing's just a rattle box. You're going to blow it up, right? And then you can go in and you can put a timing value in there that you think, man, this thing is like going to create a ton of heat. It's not, it's not what I'm, you know, was taught, 
but you'll have no KR and the thing still makes decent torque. It may not make the torque that you would if you had E in it or something, but it makes plenty. And then you get up at, you know, above peak torque and the thing just sails. Like, I mean, talking hundreds of horsepower more, it, it, it's kind of eye-opening. Sure, yeah. Th- that being said, like in an endurance application, that's probably not the play. But for guys that are like a, a head on the straight Saturday night special or go, or going down quarter mile or something, it is the play. I think you know. So yeah, I, I just wanted to head back and, and and talk a little bit more about the head gasket you, you mentioned there. I think the term you used was fire loop and a receiver groove. Uh, um, there's a number of different terms there. I, I'm essentially guessing you're talking about a, a fire ring, maybe in the in the cylinder head and a receiver groove in the block. Is it, it so it locks the the gasket into that that receiver groove? Is that the the terminology you're sort of talking there? So we used to do an O ring, mm. which is like tempered piano wire, and then we'd file fit that. But you can only stick an O ring out of the block so far. So if you cut a groove to a forty eight thousandths wire. You can only stick it out 10 before the wire pops out of the block, if you understand what I'm saying, right? So a fire ring or a flame hoop or whatever, I call them a flame hoop, and it's 80 thousandths tall, and I could stick it out of the block 20 thousandths. So I put, you know, a a flame hoop in the block, I stick the the hoop out 20 thou, and then I receiver groove it like 12 in the head, and that thing is just jamming that head gasket into that interlock. Sure. And it, it works pretty well. I'm assuming you're coupling that with a, a copper gasket to get that level of deformation? Yes. Yeah. So we'll use, as a matter of fact, when we when we do a flame hoop, I'll run a thicker gasket than normal. So we won't just run like a 40,000 gasket. I'll run like 50 or 60 and make sure that the piston and the deck height are adjusted that yeah, there seems to be two schools of thought on the the receiver groove and, and o-ring groove situation and uh traditionally i sort of see if we look at like the the top levels like top alcohol top fuel uh, tends to be uh, the o-ring and, and the head and the receiver groove and the block and uh, to, to me that that sort of makes sense because the alloy of the head is is obviously a little bit softer and is going to tend to be more prone to deformation. Plus, if you're decking or surfacing the the head, obviously, then you have to recut your your grooves. Uh, you, you're obviously not finding a problem with that. What what was the the driver between putting it in the block or the head for you? Uh, well, putting it in the head allows better serviceability for a like a drag car because if you have a problem, you could weld the head. You know, if you got to if you got to redeck the block, it's it's an issue to get all that indicated and recut it. So people don't want to do that. But I've always done it in the block and knock on wood. I, I don't even know. Like we have not blown. Like we'll, we'll take a piston out before we knock that thing out, you know. So it's okay. uh, I, I'm going to totally jack myself and blow a bunch of head gaskets after this now. But like we have so little head gasket issues. It's, it's ridiculous. All right, so in terms of an engine that produces maybe 2,000 horsepower or even 1,500 horsepower for that matter, uh, what what sort of maintenance schedule and maintenance items does that engine uh, require? Uh, I mean, ob- obviously, we're not expecting 100,000 miles of, of trouble-free motoring anymore, which, which maybe some just reading these numbers on the internet may have sort of assumed. So, yeah, what, what, what's your take on that? What, what do these engines require to keep them healthy and, and running? I guess you need to explain the difference, right? So we 
have a crate package that makes 1500 horsepower that you can drive across the country and have like zero issues with it. But that's because it's on the street. So on the street, like if you turn that thing up to 1500 horsepower, it's useless, right? You are not using that unless you've got like, you know, a ton of tire or, you know, you're actually really, you know, going to Mexico and and doing the dance, you know, like you're on 1320 racing or something like that. But if you're driving your hot rod with that kind of power, you squirt it, you get like eight seconds, 10 seconds at most, and then you're off of it. And those motors that we sell, they run forever. And the valve trains that we've designed for them, like me and Billy Godbold, I got some really trick spintron lobes that on a hydraulic are stable to like, well, they sit, they've, they've been spintron to 10,000. I've never brought them there, but, but I'll run them 7,500 with only 380 pounds open pressure and not have any issues. So our spring pressures are so low, like the valve train reliability is so good that these motors, they last, like I got one guy at 10 years, he's been driving the damn thing, you know? Oh, okay. Uh, now it's a different story of like going to, Cape Canaveral and running, you know, 2000 horse for a minute flat, then you're going to be hurting parts because, you know, you're not going to be doing that bang, 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 bang all the time. Then, then you're putting strain on the parts. It's hard to design a part to hold that much power, you know, quarter mile at a time you can get away with for a while, uh, just depending on how much load you're putting on it. So I guess you just have to figure out what is the guy going to be doing. If the guy's going to be at the track all the time, beating it all the time, then then his reliability expectations need to be in tune. It's not going to give you 100,000 miles. There's nobody on the earth that's going to give you 100,000 miles for that. So you're going to be doing rebuilds quite often. But if you're just taking, you got your little hot rod and you squirt it here and there and scare yourself and scare your friends. I mean, that thing, other than oil changes and, you know, making sure that, you know, header bolts are tight and fuel injectors are clean, that thing is going to live a long, long time. I think it probably comes back to, you know, it is very hard if it's straight driven on a straight tyre to get that thing to hook up and, and really take full throttle for extended periods of time like you can at, at a race event or a drag strip. So that makes perfect sense. Now, obviously, a, a big aspect of the power, the torque, the boost control, the reliability really comes down to, to the engine management. And you know, I'm guessing, like I have in my career, uh, it's probably a little shorter than yours, but over 27 years, you, you've probably seen some pretty dramatic shifts in what's available, the quality of what's available, and and therefore what it can do, and and that's made a, a massive difference to the the re, the results that we can expect. So I'm I'm interested in in terms of the the ECUs that are your go to at the moment for these packages. What what are you using? So. Like it, it just depends on the price point. Like our standard crate packages are running Holly EFI, and that seems to work for for most people. When we get into an application where we really need to control things at a much finer level, I'll use uh, what's called well the the company name is Life Racing, mm-hmm. um, and so that ECU it, it it'll like it, it'll massage your shoulders while you're driving. I mean, it does. It does things so well, so fast, but you know, the price point is very different than what you're going to get into for a Holly. Like you, you can get into a Holly at, you know, all in at like $2,500, all in in a life unit, you're like 15000 So you have to decide what it is you want to do with the car. But some things that we've been building into our engine packages that are really nice is we've been, 
we have this thing it's called the safety package for 550 bucks and so we monitor the oil pressure we monitor the fuel pressure you know water temperature and then and then also fuel duty and so if fuel duty ever spikes you know we can cut coils if water temperature ever gets too hot we can pull the throttle back because it's electronic throttle oil pressure ever goes down we'll shut the motor off uh you know different things like that and i can't tell you how many times you know the motor usually doesn't break because you know if it makes it through the dyno and then everything is good it's usually a supporting system that kills it you know it's usually something happened they overheated it they ran it out of fuel the injectors got dirty uh, you know, it didn't have enough oil pressure, whatever it may be. So at some point when the, when the system gets really good, I could almost warranty these things, just having the safety system being that much in control. But I don't know that the people would like me to control it that much, but I'm really kind of thinking of going down that route because it'll just, it'll save the motor and put it in limp and then they'll be pissed because it's in limp, but something else is wrong. You know, they're probably going to be a, a lot less pissed than paying for a full overhaul because something stupid went wrong and took out the whole engine, though, right? I mean, I had a guy streetcar, and we had the oil pressure set up to where below twenty pounds, it would shut the motor off. And he called me and he said, "You know, the motor keeps shutting off on me." And I'm like, "It keeps shutting off." I'm like, really? He's like, "Yeah, it's, it's shut off a couple times today." And I'm like, "Well, what are you doing?" And he was like, "On a banked oval, like NASCAR." like racing this thing and is a wet sump and it was running it out of oil, you know? And, and I'm like, it's not really built for that. Oh my God, man. Like I just, I just saved you three engines with this thing, you know? And he didn't understand he was running it out of oil, you know? Yeah. Uh, so stuff like that, it just makes, I like, I get so excited about these little ideas that we come up with and it, you know, turns into saving this guy big money, you know? Yeah, I, I think the the oil pressure cut you know, something I've been using for for a long time, particularly when I was tuning customer engines, because it just takes the responsibility off the driver. I mean, particularly if you don't have some more sophisticated oil pressure monitoring as well. If you've just got the old school oil pressure light, I mean, that's probably what fifteen psi. It's only really designed to be of any use when when you start the engine at idle. And if you see that damn light come on at six thousand rpm and you're already at fifteen psi, well, the engine's probably toast anyway that's if you even see the oil pressure light and, and get out of it so having the ECU control all of that so the driver doesn't need to, to think or worry it's just a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned is coming back to the the price points of that holly versus the the life racing and, and those are very different. I mean, life racing, to put it in perspective, is a professional level ECU. You'll see these in the likes of Le Mans prototype cars. So so that's the sort of, of product you're talking about. There's a lot of sophisticated uh, features in those ECUs that, that sort of are born out of a motorsport uh, program. In terms of, of the differences from your perspective with the engines you're building and tuning, what is it with the life racing that you're taking advantage of that you couldn't do on the Holly? Um, I think that's just the process, like what's happening with the processor is happening a lot faster than it is in Holly. So I think there's like, and, and this is nothing to take away from Holly because Holly is bar none unbeatable for the price. Like they are just unbelievable for what you get. But you know, like the, the Lambda feedback, the Holly is fantastic, but the Lambda feedback on a life unit is like, it's like second to none. You know, like we were talking about that oil pressure, like on the Holly, 
I'll go ahead and say, okay, well, you know, when it reaches 20 pounds, we're cutting it on the life unit. I'll data log the car driving around and then I'll plot a curve 15 PSI under through the engine RPM. And you know, if it ever drops below 15 PSI through its normal operating, not just idle, it'll go into lint mode. So that it just could do a lot more. I don't know. I mean, you are going to get what you pay for, right? I mean, if, you, if you're paying 15 grand, you're paying 15 grand for a reason, right? That system was born in a racing circuit. Those guys that are running that, they are not messing around. They got big dollars on the line. If you got some funky stuff going on, it's not going to be acceptable. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, 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 but that said, there's nothing on the market that, in my mind, for the price point that could compete with Holly right now. You've already mentioned that you're using drive-by-wire throttle, um, which is you know, a pretty mature technology. I know there's a lot of people who still have it in their minds that nothing beats a cable throttle in terms of response. But um, you know, I'd definitely argue that, and there's a lot of advantages that come with using drive-by-wire in terms of being able to plot the driver's foot pedal position versus the actual excel, uh, the uh, throttle plate position. So you can control and manipulate the the feel as far as the driver's concerned. The other element when you're talking about something that's producing yeah, 1,000, 1,500 plus horsepower uh, with turbochargers is um, actually getting that power to, to the road. I mean, hey, sometimes we might not want to. It's, it's cool to do a, a big smoky burnout, but other times trying to at least control the the torque so that we can at least get the majority of it to the to the road or the racetrack is beneficial. Are you doing anything with... Uh, Boost versus speed, boost boost versus gear, boost versus throttle position to try and make that torque a little bit more manageable. Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, I mean, and it just depends on what the customer wants. But you can do boost by mile per hour, uh, boost versus engine speed. Uh, you know, the Holly at at a quarter mile track, they have that like uh, perfect pass, or I forgot what the hell it was called, but. You know, you're plotting a drive shaft speed, and then when the drive shaft gets out of plot, then it pulls ignition timing. Sort of a, a, a almost like a traction control, but passive, really. Right. So that that's and you can go crazy in like the one and two D tables. You can you know this and that and plus this plus that. Like you can really start getting nuts and making. You can tailor it to all sorts of different things. You know, you can have like an adjustable boost that. When the ethanol content is there at 20 pounds and then when there's no ethanol, that number 10 on the dial is only 10 pounds, you know. So, it like right there, my mind is kind of going off in those directions right now of all these little custom trinkets that you can add to the package that really cool that people don't necessarily know are there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a, a lot of that really just comes down to um, how creative you, you want to be and how much time you want to spend on on developing these aspects. You, know, you just mentioned number 10 on the dial, so I, I take it you, you're still giving the driver some control as well with a, a, a driver boost switch or a multi-position switch? Uh, yeah, it just depends. Like uh, a, lot of, a lot of our packages, we just give them that little touchscreen, has an SD card, the SD card has multiple tunes they wake up in the morning they can slam a tune in it depending on what fuel they have in it and how much horsepower they want that seems to be the easiest low cost way for the driver to be able to control it sure we also have you know like 10 pot switches that you know change boost and tunes we've got keyed switches that are like resistance valued so when you switch the key it senses the resistance change and it'll change the tune 
based on that. So again, like I said, we can, we can go crazy yeah. with, with that kind of stuff. And I'm glad to do it if the customer wants to go there. But a lot of guys are just happy with being able to adjust it. Like on the turbo motor, they're like, uh, what I, Tom, a lot of them don't even want gear based or anything that, that like that. They just want, they want their 800 horse tune. They want a thousand horse tune. They want their kill tune and we can give them all of that stuff. And it really is just like, you know, 20 seconds to download it in the in the car in terms of the the tuning you sort of alluded to the original engine dyno that you had which was the manual water brake dyno uh, am, am i safe to assume you've you've since upgraded what are you using these days still a water brake it's a it's it's a dts which is i guess you'd call it superflow now we made the brake in that we blew up the original one so many times we made the brake in that and we're in the process of kind of making our own big dyno to to hold because my dyno gets really angry at like 2,500 horse. It's just starts letting it go. It starts cavitating the water. So we're, we're designing a new brake that'll be in like the 4,000 horse range. And that'll be pretty fun to actually pull 4,000 in like a 600 RPM a second style mm. run. Like that's a hairy little pull right there <laughs> when you're running 15 seconds at 4,000. It's know? a lot. That's a lot. So, but I want to be able to do that in the room. You know? Okay. Uh, in terms of that, you, you mentioned, I guess, for, for those who aren't aware, the water brake, that's the, as, as its name implies, the brake that actually provides load to the dyno so that the engine just doesn't sort of spin straight up to, to the limiter. And and your original one, you, you had a knob essentially that controlled the amount of load you were applying. Is that, is that how that worked, manual control as, as opposed to a computer-controlled dyno? Correct. It's no different. Like the, the one that I had originally is not that much different than the one that I have now, except for now I have a servo on the top of the water brake and I have a servo on the bottom. And the computer swings those servos to control the load. Yeah. So... Like before, and then there's no joke, is I all it was was like a garden valve, you know. I mean, that's it was a glorified garden valve. Like if you think of a hose as you're turning it on, that's what it was. And I was doing turbo and nitrous stuff back in the day, so I welded it like a big eighth pipe to that valve and I'd swing that thing around <laughs> trying to grab the motor. When you, you hit the nitrous, you sitting there trying to swing the, the water valve to catch it, you know, and you find out real quick that you're not as fast as the computer is with the servo. So I remember my, my first experience with a, a water brake engine dyno and, and I was really looking forward to it. I was mapping, a, I think it was a, a supercharged uh, Buick V6 uh, marathon jet, jet sprint boat motor and um, yeah, I was really looking forward to it. I'd come from a, a hydraulic Dynapack chassis dyno where the control was really, really precise and yeah. uh, this was a manual, manual brake. And I, I said to the guy operating the dyno, all right, I want to go to this cell here. And so he sort of manipulated the throttle and, and turned this little little knob. And sort of all we did was drew circles around the cell that I was interested in for about <laughs> yeah. 30 or 40 seconds. And I was yeah. sort of quick, quickly realized, all right, well, well this isn't going to fly. I mean, what it was yeah. pretty good for was was wide open throttle ramp runs. But but that was about where it started and, and where it finished. So, you know, modern technology with these computer controlled dynos, obviously, it, it's come a huge 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 distance have you looked at some of the more modern chassis dynos as well or does that just not make sense given obviously you you are building crate motors that don't necessarily come with a chassis to dyno them in yeah i think for a while there i actually was thinking about it because it's pretty safe you don't have to go out in the street and drive it but nowadays like beginning of the year we're not going to be building more more cars 
And, you know, as far as like modern cars, like we can't touch any of those right now. Like EPA is just that it's got to be like smog exempt for us to work on it. So it really doesn't even have a play for us right now. Uh, I'm interested to dive into that because obviously this is a topic that that comes up and a lot of the, the shops, particularly in the US, are changing their direction based on, on the EPA who have obviously got a fairly strong mandate to sort of crush what's happening in the aftermarket and and whether you you like that or you don't whether you're pro or con it doesn't really matter because that's the reality we work we're working with so you you just mentioned smog exempt so how how does is is there a a class of vehicle or engine that the epa is sort of you know turn a blind eye to you can do what you want well yeah i mean so and i don't know if it's changed recently because it seems like that whole atmosphere is moving fast. We live in Cali. So like if you breathe wrong, you're, you're illegal, but it, it was like 74 and older. Uh, you didn't have to worry about it. I don't, I, I don't know. It, it may have changed recently again, but that, that, that was the, uh, the deal. You know? Okay. So if you're dealing with something older than that, you don't really need to worry about the EPA stepping in and, and telling you you're doing something illegal. It's good for us. Cause we really, we really build engines for hot rods. So we're building stuff for like 69 Camaros, 68 Chevelles, 67 Mustang, you know, all the golden era, bad dude, hot rods. If the guy signs like an exemption that it's going to be a race car only, we'll go ahead and build you something for, you know, a late model, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to go out of our way to, to build anything late model just because like they're, the fines are, they're crazy, you know? Fair enough. Yeah. I think, uh, my one buddy said he got $11 million fine or something like that. He shut his business down and everything. So that, that would probably make most people sit up and, and take a little bit of notice. Uh, just coming back one step, you, you mentioned sort of stepping up from a dyno that's currently holding two and a half thousand horsepower to something capable of four. And I mean that's that's an easy number to say, but uh, actually putting something on that dyno that can uh, really test um, its capabilities is is a different thing altogether. You know, from where you are with your engines that are circa two thousand five hundred horsepower, what what are you going to need to change in terms of uh, engine internals, components, and and turbocharger systems in order to sort of take it from twenty five hundred to four thousand? Well, the turbos obviously become larger at that level, and the components. Not very different, to be honest. Uh, I mean, when you're at a 2,500 horse level to a 4,000 horse level, I think, you know, aluminum rod, obviously flame hoop, things like that. And, and you know, you get into like a cast piece. You're not into a cast piece anymore. You're into like a billet part at that level. Like we haven't been able to run it on our dyno. Like our dyno, like we got, we, we flashed 3000 a couple times, but half the time, you know, steam's coming out of the back of the dyno. Um, and I haven't seen many dynos that actually can hold it other than like, than like a flash, yeah. you know. I mean, you're creating a, a lot of energy or trying to con, con, consume a lot of energy to hold sort of three, 4,000 horsepower, of course. So uh, that, that creates a lot of yeah. heat of, as well. So I think Moran actually did like a dual land and sea and he grabbed like 5,500 and, and did it in, in a good rate. So he put some time into that. That was that was really impressive uh, on his dyno. So I had called him and asked him what he had what he had done with that. And he definitely did some homework to get that to work right. Yeah, it's interesting when the the ramp up in terms of engine performance is 
uh, exceeding the rate at which maybe some of the dyno manufacturers are, are sort of ramping up their equipment as well. Definitely interesting to see where things go in the in the next few years. All right, look, Tom, I think we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this thing up. I, I want to respect your time here. And uh, we like to finish all of our podcasts with the same three questions we ask all of our guests. The, the first of those is, is what's next and in the future for you and NRE? Obviously, you've, you've mentioned you've sort of pulled back on some of these custom builds. So the, where's the future? What's that hold for you? I think the future is um, some uh, an affordable product line uh, because I think a lot of people would like our engines, but maybe can't afford it. So we're really kind of pushing toward, well, if you can't have one of our engines, we'll sell you one of our camshafts. We'll sell you a header kit. We'll sell you, you know, an alien intake. Uh, we're, we're casting those right now. Uh, we'll sell you some of our turbochargers. So we have like 20 products that are in, in the works of actually had quite a few of them done for a while, but I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to release it correctly. Uh, so that and and more affordable, usable uh, crate packages, that's really where I think our push is going to be is into the easier to install crate engines that are a little more full featured, like you're getting a lot. The turnkey is kind of overused, but it's almost turnkey to where you know all these things are done for you. Yeah, and I think that the simpler you can make it for the end user, the installer, the, the better. The, the more work they've got to do, the more hurdles there are in the way, and the more problems they're going to have. And I mean, I think the other aspect that probably comes with that is the more time you or your staff end up answering technical questions on why something doesn't work the way uh, the the customer actually thought. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, next question, is there any advice that you'd give to a younger version of yourself or some of our younger listeners out there uh, that would help maybe reach where you've got to in your career today faster, potentially maybe avoid some pitfalls that you've seen across your, your time? Know your value would be one of them, right? I think there was way, way too many years that I kind of just hoard out and, and just did it because I wanted to do it and I wanted to learn. And I kind of paid the customer to do all those one if pro, uh, what if projects. But I think you should get paid for, for your value. So if you're starting out, don't just do it. Get yourself wrapped up into this monumental project and then have a customer that's not willing to pay what you're worth. I think I, I you know, I think the first 10 years I lost money every year. Mm. And I just did it because I didn't care. I loved it. I didn't. I, I, it didn't matter to me that power was getting shut off at my house. None of that mattered. I, I loved. I loved every inch of it. I worked seven days a week. But I think. I think I would charge more. So I would. I would tell that somebody who's starting out. You know, make sure you got a product that you know you're going to give that customer some real value and then charge accordingly. Yeah, I think I think again that's that's really solid advice. It, it's it's too easy to undervalue what you're doing uh, and the problem with that is not only do you end up robbing yourself, it, it also ends up sort of in a, in a race to zero in terms of you know the others who are out there in the industry. So I, I think it is important to to know the value of what you're doing and to charge accordingly. That's always difficult to do. Maybe when you're first getting started and you know you can't put food on the table, but you know, I think you do set a precedent when when you start undervaluing yourself, and that's difficult to come back from. 
the other thing I think as well is it becomes a bit of a, a supply and demand issue. I, I know a lot of shop owners who sort of will gloat to me that uh, you know they're, they're booked out till the middle of next year. Yeah. And and my answer is always, well, you need to raise your prices because that's not a sustainable level of of backlog that you've got in front of you. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you need to be managing that expectation a, a little bit better. So this is where the the sort of the balance of of business and entrepreneurial aspect and and physically being able to do the job. There's that sort of. Uh, synergy between the two and, and getting that right. It's often easier said than done. All right, Tom, for last question for today, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, uh, where are they best to do that? Uh, currently, we've got an Instagram, Nelson Racing Engines, and a Facebook, uh, you know, at Nelson Racing Engines. Uh, my website, nelsonracingengines.com. You can see, you know, a lot of projects, engines that we sell, pricing, breakdowns. And in the future, I we've we shot like 26 episodes for YouTube. Um, and probably within the next three or four months, we're going to uh, start releasing them. But I just, I'm not going to release any of them until I get at least like 12 fully edited and in the bank. And that way I can release one a week for 26 weeks. But it's going to be pretty fun. I, uh, we, spent a lot of time, you know, shooting these things and like done one like red cameras with master glass lenses and lit correctly and i think it's going to be cool it'll be not only will it be cool to see the projects but they're shot so beautifully and we try to put like a learning element in these uh in these videos that uh you know it's going to be pretty cool when we relaunch our youtube excellent oh we'll put some links to the show notes uh to those accounts and uh yeah certainly look forward to seeing your new youtube series launch and hopefully look forward to in the not too distant future maybe seeing some 4,000 horsepower dyno pulls as well once you, we get to that point oh, thanks uh, again for your time Tom it's been great to get some more insight into NRE and uh, your business philosophy thanks for joining us alright thanks a lot if you enjoyed this episode of Tune In with Tom Nelson we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform these reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests to say thanks each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt anywhere in the world Also, this is a great place to ask any questions you might have too, and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week, a big shout out to Sparky Stav from the UK, who has said, Caution, will cost you money. This is a great podcast with lots of interesting interviews and insights, but listening to it will give you crazy ideas about your own build and cause you to spend even more. Now, Sparky Stav's also asked a question. He's asked, how do we choose the guests for the show? Do they have to get in touch with us or do we reach out to them? Good question there. And it is actually a little bit of both. We've been in the automotive industry now for about 20 years. So over that time, we have built up a pretty wide network of what we would consider to be people out there in the industry that are at the top of their game. So obviously we can reach out to those people and at the same time as the podcast has grown and built up a bit of an audience, we have started to have people reach out to us to get on the podcast as well. Uh, If you get in touch with us with your t-shirt size and shipping details, we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you.
All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.